Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Michael Carlino again. Michael, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Glad to have you back. And I really enjoyed our last conversation and wish I had more conversations like that, both on, <laughs> on the what I was saying and also what I was hearing. And I felt like, I guess where we left off was talking about a lot of things, about the emotions, the values behind what we do. And I think that people don't talk about that as much as they'd like to. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate the uh, the format that we can have this discussion in because my concern in our current cultural climate that we find ourselves in is that it's like we've elevated Twitter mic drops to be in the apex of communication. That it looks like it seems to me that people have, in a sense, valorized ending a conversation as opposed to extending a conversation, and that that's a problem by and large. Like I see whether it's social media, it seems like it's. Tr- kind of transferred into how humans communicate right now, where it seems to be that we elevate the idea of ending it and showing up your opponent like a rap battle, as opposed to uh, actually engaging them and seeking mutual growth in a conversation. So appreciate the format. I think it helps foster that better. Twitter mic chop. I, th- I like that. I mean, it immediately conveys, I think, I think everyone knows what that meant. I, I'm pretty sure I did. I think yeah. of it as like people are trying to checkmate all the time. Yep. And it's not just checkmates, but it's like fools, like humiliating fools mates. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's just not healthy for dialogue. It's also, it's dehumanizing too. Um, as you know, we were talking last time, just as a, as a Christian who believes that humans are made in the image of God, I believe that we have inherent dignity that stems directly from being created by him. And to go at someone and to treat them in such a way is despicable in my estimation. So like one verse in scripture, it's James chapter three, verse nine in the New Testament. It says that, uh, when you curse someone, you're cursing someone who's been made in the image and likeness of God. And that's and it says that that's, that has a very strong phrasing of that ought not be. And so uh, there's just this reality that from a Christian worldview, the idea of ending conversations and looking to show up your opponent is uh, is not how to communicate. It's the opposite. It's the antithesis of what we should be doing. So, And I would say, even if you don't, even if you're purely Machiavellian, mm-hmm. it's not effective. Yeah. Like when was the last time someone mic dropped you and to, to listen to something? So it's myself I'm saying. And when was the last time someone like checkmated you and you're like, oh, you're right. Okay, now I agree with you. I'm going to follow what you said. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're taking your like, heels. Yeah. It's like the old the old proverb in history of um, that you you gain more flies with uh, with honey than with vinegar. If you want to persuade someone, do it through gracious words. Uh, that 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 will effectively change someone. I like I found in conversation with people. That they oftentimes, when you when you can actually change their heart towards you, that uh, your persuasiveness will will uh, be more effective at that point than yeah, who, who's won over by a jerk? Like that just that doesn't happen. So. I'm not sure how many listeners heard this story before. When I was getting started with this before the podcast, I was talking to a friend, and he would I think many eco minded people I don't know what the right term would be would, would they would describe him as a denier. And I thought he didn't know. I thought he was just ignorant. So I'm talking about environmental stuff. And, and his view was in all time, in all of human history, there have been people who said the end of the world is near. And so far it hasn't been ended. And if that's been going on for five, 10,000 years, the odds of now being the time that like, him being alive, probably pretty low. Mm-hmm. And so he looks back and says, it's a great way to get power. It's a great way to get people to listen to you. And so he's figuring, Probably, maybe the people believe it, maybe they don't, but it certainly does get them power. It's like it does get them important. So, probably not very accurate. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, he probably just doesn't know the science. So I sent him a couple graphs and I was very surprised to find that he pointed out, I forget the details, but he would show that he showed that like, if you look at the data or the people who took this data, they revised it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, yeah, of course, you, sometimes the measurement was off. And he goes, the revising always shows the same direction. So if it was just experimental issues, sometimes it would go up, sometimes it would go down, but it was always showing increasing warming, right? And he says that implies there's a bias because otherwise it'd be random. So it goes back and forth a couple of times. And eventually I sent him like the whole IPCC report and, you know, from the UN and, and pointing out a few different things. Mm-hmm. And he keeps finding all these places where it's not quite as, as clear as I thought. Yeah. And eventually I realized I really can't say I understand this backward and forward. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, I have to trust what people or what other scientists are saying. And ultimately, I'm acting based on a gut feel that comes from looking at a fair amount of data that could be interpreted in different ways. Now, I think it's overwhelmingly clear, but I can't say that, I'm, that I have access to some truth that he doesn't. And therefore, I'm completely right and he's completely wrong. And I changed my tune of, I'm not trying to tell people the answer. Yeah. And a couple of things happened. One was that I started opening up to listen to other people. And I think that a lot of people might hear what I'm saying and say, Josh, that's heresy. Like, don't talk that way mm-hmm. because you are right. Yeah. Even if you don't think you have access to perfect truth, it is true. Yeah. But there's another thing that happened which was that maybe something like a year later, he came back to me and said, you know, I've been thinking about it and I see some other things. He wasn't trying to prove me right anymore. So I haven't changed my behavior, my practices of my, how I'm living my life personally, but I've softened up on the self-righteousness. And I think I, I'm plenty self-righteous. Yeah, we all- but also I, I believe I've become more effective in influencing others by being open to being influenced myself. Yeah, that's good. I think, you know, what you're tapping into and what I've noticed, because I would be by an environmentalist type standard, as you were saying, that kind of what someone of that ilk would quickly label someone like me a denier because of where I would be on many of these issues as a conservative. And, you know, there's some there's some good books out there. I think of a book, I think his last name is Epstein called The Moral Theory of Fossil Fuels and who these the actual scientists that are reputable that are arguing the opposite of what some of our mainstream are. And, you know, you and I had a previous conversation before we started recording for for this podcast a while back. And we were talking about how, like in history, even like Galileo, as he's discovering his and Kepler and these other great scientists in history, they were considered the outcast by the overwhelming majority until they're proven correct. And so it's not always just the majority consensus wins. And oftentimes it's actually not the opposite case. So I, so yeah, I think that helps me mediate these discussions in a way where what I want to avoid is scientism, where it's, it's almost like this religious bent where you, the way that you interpret the scientific data becomes like this, almost has this religious ethos to it, where at root, we're all accepting things on faith. Like when you are reading these charts that you were sharing with your friend too, this is finite human beings trying to understand things much bigger than us. And we need to have the intellectual humility to admit that as we're looking at the data and also admit that we all have biases coming into this. I fully admit I have a bias 
um, towards the Christian worldview because I believe it to be right. And I, and I accept that by faith. I believe that that's validated in history and in science, but I do like, I need to admit that coming into a conversation that's coloring. Like that's the glasses through which I look through the world and someone who's on the other side is also having biases coming into them. And if we both admit that, I think that allows a conversation to happen as opposed to one person claiming this like neutral objective position. And then the other person's jaded. Like that doesn't, that doesn't foster a communication that's effective. And one of the ways I put it is that I mean, Newt Gingrich doesn't think he's politically on the right. He thinks he's where he ought to be. He thinks he's in the middle. And did I ever tell you about when I teach my classes, sometimes I ask my students in leadership, we're, we're talking about views and how lenses through which we see the world. And a lot of, if, if you haven't gotten that yet, that we all have lenses yep, world and view. we all have biases, then people do believe they have a neutral objective view and that they do think they have a handle on objective reality. Maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe, you know, but I asked them, how do you know the earth is round? How do you know that the earth isn't flat? And let's just say that we could doctor images from space. So when you see a picture of the earth from space, that could easily be made up. And they start getting angry at me, a couple of them. The angry ones get the loudest. Yeah. They argue with me about how it's clearly a sphere or round. Right. But I'm, I'm saying, I'm not trying to prove that it's one way or the other. I'm saying, what evidence you have? Yeah. And it comes down to everyone told me that what, you know, that's what everyone says. Yep. And it's pretty hard to come up with firsthand evidence that it's round. I mean, you could in principle, there's a couple things. If you, a ship in the distant on the ocean, you'll see the, the top of the ship before you see the bottom of the ship yep. or a bridge this far away. You can see the top of the bridge before you can see the bottom of the bridge, which implies that it's round, but it could be locally round. Yeah. That, otherwise it's pretty hard. You know, people say, well, I flew all around the world. I took a trip. And I'm like, you got in a plane and got out. You, for all you know, it went in a circle and you don't know. You don't actually have personal experience of that. Mm-hmm. And it's not denial to say I'm going on what other people tell me. It's actually more accurate. That's what all humans have done for, you know, that's, that's how we've, we've developed in many ways. So, yeah. And even as a, from a Christian view, like in a lot of the classes that I'm in, you know, when we're learning about developing our view of the world, what we call worldview, or if it's, you know, we use language already, the glasses through which we look at the world. Like I think of in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 11, verse three, it says that by faith, we understand that the universe came into being by, by the word of God. And so that, like, th- there is a fundamental reality that we need to admit that I presuppose God did it. And I believe I have a handle on objective reality, not because I came up with it, but I'm, a, I'm accepting and believing that that is so because God did it and he said so, and he's revealed that to us in the Bible. So, so, but again, I, I'm not, I think a lot of times conversations in these, in these realms get bogged down because yeah, people have this view. It's almost like they want to say, I have the objective truth and it's like rooting it in themselves. And we have to be very clear, like none of us are rooting it ultimately in ourselves because we can't, we don't have the capacity to do that. We're accepting what we see and we have to admit that we're finite. So yeah, I totally agree. Another word that comes, the word faith has become a bigger word for me in recent years. Mm-hmm. And now to me, faith means belief without evidence. I would be different than that. Yeah, that's interesting. So we would disagree there. So let me say what I would say, and then I would love to hear. Yeah. Like I would say that in Hebrews 11, one, so two verses before what I just said about by faith, we understand the world's coming to be in by the word of God. Hebrews 11, one says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for 
the conviction of things not yet seen. So in, in the Christian understanding, faith is an assurance in the God who reveals himself as he is in the Bible. So, so a lot of people would look at faith as a blind leap, but as Christians, we disagree. We believe faith is receiving from God with a rock solid assurance that what he says is true. So the Christian view of faith is actually the the antithesis of blind leap. It's actually a assurance and a conviction of what is real and what is true. So, uh, but I'd love to hear, yeah, what you have to say there. By your definition of faith, can you have faith in something that's independent of God? Can you have faith that the sun will rise in the east tomorrow morning? Is that faith or is that, or faith that you're, like if a dog is faithful, mm-hmm. no, that's different. I mean, like, is it always divine? Is, is there also faith just... Like I have faith that I'm going to do well in my test tomorrow if I study hard enough. Yeah, you can have faith in 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 other things. I would say so to get deeper into like maybe an epistemology or a, an understanding of knowledge from a Christian worldview. I would say that every fact that is or everything that is flows from the God of the Bible. So all that we know that is true is directly coming from Him. So my faith. So you either have faith in reality. Or you're you're delusional. We could say too. There are people that clearly have a delusion. Or the other option would be: I would say that a non-believer, someone who's not a Christian, is borrowing capital from the God who has created all things, and is the the words of the Bible in Romans one is suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. In other words, they're using all the stuff that God has made and flouting Him while they're doing that, or rejecting Him while they're. So even so, like I believe that a non-Christian scientist, for example can be right about his observations, but he is not actually living, um, if he's disbelieving in God, he's not actually living in accord with the God who made it. So it'd be like a, it'd be like a, if I was inspecting an artist's handiwork, if I was looking at a, a painting and I were to say, this is really beautiful. I like this. I like this. And I were to make like detailed observations about it, but I rejected the existence of the person that drew it. I don't think I fully understand the picture or the the character of the person who's drawn it. So I won't fully understand the picture. In a similar way, I would say that's how it works with someone seeking to understand reality apart from God. I think that you can pick up on things from observation, but that the root reason of those things' existence cannot be fully understood because you don't know the character of the creator of it all, the artist behind it all. Okay. I'll go to, so for faith for me is I distinguish faith from belief as I would put it, belief in the supernatural. Okay. And if there's religious faith, maybe faith that there's a, that there's a God, that what's written in the Bible is true. Mm-hmm. And then I would, that's one, that's faith in, some, in something supernatural, but one can also have faith in, you know, that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Right. And the more evidence you have, the more it switches from evidence to belief. So maybe uh, from faith, sorry, to belief or proof. So if, if the sun is risen every day, Maybe I don't really have so much faith that the sun is going to rise tomorrow because it keeps doing it pretty consistently. Mm-hmm. So maybe I more believe that the sun is going to rise tomorrow in the East. But when I act, people say, you know, what you do doesn't matter. It's, it's just one person's actions. And how do you think you can really change when the world is, you know, 7.9 billion people doing all sorts of different things? And to me, I have faith that what I do will make a difference. Mm-hmm. To some extent, I have some evidence that there are people in the past who have done things that on, on a on a comparable scale, I think of Thomas Clarkson and William Wilberforce acting on slavery in the British Empire. Yeah, and I think of in my book I talk about W. Edwards Deming, of an an engineer slash leader slash manager who helped revolutionize Japan post war to go from a bombed out country to a global leader in uh, engineering and, and uh, in industry. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and he did it in less than 10 years or the influence he did was very fast. And that's the kind of stuff, people have done stuff like that before. Changed empires. Yeah. So I have faith that I can pull off my role in something like that. Mm-hmm. And do I have belief? No, because I can't, I have no evidence that I can pull this off. Mm-hmm. So I'm acting on a lot of faith and it keeps me going. And if someone needs proof before acting, I think we're going to wait for a long time before acting. And what's, so why do I care about calling it faith? Because science has a great role in life, I believe. I mean, to me, it's about finding about nature. There's a, there's a tremendous beauty to it. Just knowing why, it's great to see a rainbow. Mm-hmm. And when you know the math of how refraction works and how light propagates, to me, there's a greater beauty that's to, it's crazy how, you know, you can say, why are, trees and streams so beautiful to us. Well, you could, one could say we evolved that way. Could you imagine if we evolved to be like freaked out by those things? Mm-hmm. We evolved to, to like things that are healthy for us. But then we see pictures of galaxies and nebula and things at subatomic scale, uh, microscopic scales that were totally outside of our, our evolutionary past. And yet it's still beautiful. Mm-hmm. It keeps being beautiful. There's something crazy about that, that I love. And that said, there are huge limits to science of can we pull out of in the environment? We, we have a big mess. We are decreasing the Earth's ability to sustain life, as best I can tell. And what we're seeing now, the wildfires and the floods, that's all from things that happened decades ago. And things we did yesterday, the effects of those we felt for decades, centuries, maybe millennia to come for some of the really toxic stuff. We know that it's going to get the Earth's ability to to sustain life is going to decrease for at least during our lifetimes. Can we pull out of it? Will we get into arguments and fights and wars to exacerbate it beyond, you know, past points of no return? Well, I have faith that we have the, that that's a pot, that's a distinct possibility, but that we can pull out of it. If it, without that faith, I would not act so much. Interesting. Yeah. So it's interesting. The, the categories you're using. So from in scripture, belief and faith are the same thing, but what you're using to, show where we might connect a little bit here would be what you're calling faith, I would call hope in that. So in the Bible, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle Paul teaches that that these three remain, he says, he says, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, he says, is love. But what's interesting is he's tying those things together because intricately, love, faith, and hope are connected deeply. And hope is something that I can't see, but that I'm accepting based on prior observation and current conviction, I would say. So that, that, that is a hope in the future. And so as a Christian, I hope, for example, my hope is in God. I'm not of the same understanding that I'm not worried about the earth running out of resources because of my understanding of who God is, how he's made the world to work and how he's revealed that things will come to an end. But I'm still in that schema. I have a hope in those things in the same way that you would. So I think you're, what you would say it, faith is, I would call hope. And then belief would be faith for me just to kind of give some categories of how we probably think through that. So. And I wonder if my, the beauty that I see in nature has some correspondence to something divine. I think it does. Like as a Christian, obviously I, I see the fact that we have been made in the image of God to have a, a unique capacity to take in beauty and love it. And as Psalm 19, one says that the heavens declare the glory of God. I think we, like when you look at the, at, at the Grand Canyon, you just are in a state of awe. I think that we've been made to, to have that sensation because we are beholding the thing that our God made. And 
to not love it is to be unhuman. So there's a a theologian I love in history named C.S. Lewis. He was rather popular in his day as a writer. And one of the things he argues, uh, he actually writes an entire book. It's called The Abolition of Man. It's a fantastic book. But one of the things he talks about in there is what's called natural law. And what what he's talking about is that there is a nature and an inherent capacity in us to love beauty. And what he says in that, what's interesting is he says that that's flowing from God is what he teaches, but he says it destroys people to take that away. And he actually, it's fascinating. This whole book he writes is against a middle school book that was written for boys in like grades five and six, I think, in England back in the day. And essentially this middle school book was arguing that humans get to determine what is beautiful. And that only, like for the example used in this middle school book was that if you look at a waterfall, you get to determine whether you think it's sublime and your, your statement that it's sublime makes it so is what this book was arguing. And Lewis recoiled at that thought. He, and he, he said, no, like if you can look at the Grand Canyon or if you can look at the at the waterfall, this grand waterfall, or these other things, they're, they are inherently worthy of praise. They're good in and of themselves. And it's because God made them so. And so if we remove that, I think there's huge detriment to society and, and just how we interact with things. He, he uses the analogy that it's like removing, it's like boys without chests at that point. We remove the heart of humanity if we can't have this inherent capacity to love beauty. We're going to have open threads no matter how long we talk. <laughs> more as we go. Yeah. I'm going to switch to if it's okay with you, to what I talked about before about that process of, of coming up with something to act on. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do that. So is the environment, I'm going to ask this, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. Uh-huh. Is the environment something you care about enough to act on? Is it something that, you've, that means something to you? Uh, yeah. So maybe some different terms and some different interpretations of what that means. But as a Christian who believes that this world has been made by God and, and that God demands that I steward it and, uh, and use it for other humans' good and for his glory, yes. It's very important to me. So when you think about the environment, what do you think about? Like what images, not like what in the future, but what do images come to mind or do memories or, or like what, what's motivating you? Yeah, my worldview and my understanding of the environment is such that, again, since, since a good God has made this, and in, in the Bible, God made this earth good and sin has destroyed it. And humans that are sinful continually abuse the world. And so this world has, is an incredible place. Uh, this universe we live in, it's just a remarkable thing made by a good God. And I believe that God, through the person and work of, of Jesus Christ, is renewing it. So my, my hope is, like uh, Romans 8 in the Bible talks about the God, that the earth is groaning for redemption and that God is renewing it. And so when I think about the environment, I think about anything that's in the world, when I think about uh, the world in its natural state is it's our job as humans to civilize the world and to make it livable for ourselves. We've been called to take dominion over it and to use it for other humans good as well. So I don't put the world over me in terms of it's not my job to necessarily just preserve the world. It's my job given by God. And all humans have this, I believe. When Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden, it says in the Bible, they were told to take dominion of the earth and subdue it and to be fruitful and multiply on it. So I believe that the environment is made by God and he has built it so that we can use it and take advantage of it for our good and that it can actually be done in a way where the earth can can um, not be exploited and destroyed, but that the world itself is teeming with life and that when we tap into those resources that we find more, not less. So I believe that the world is built with its teeming with life and capital. And just like uh, just like with money, I think the world uh, can actually be built 
and grow and flourish when harnessed wisely. So that would be kind of my view of the environment. Like I think all these things that we see from the trees to the, to the atmosphere, to all the animals in it that this earth has, it is amazing the capacity for development and for flourishing that's built into the environment. So my hope is to see that from a Christian perspective. I want us to continue to grow and to take advantage of all these amazing resources around us. It's, it's sad that in our current culture, I really think since we went to space in the late 1960s, we really haven't developed much. <laughs> and I, I'm frustrated by that. I think that we should be doing more uh, with developing and, and seeing the earth, earth's resources used well. So. A lot of what you talked about was about the world. Mm-hmm. I'm curious also your personal experience of these things. Yeah. I mean, because obviously we've all had unique experiences. I've been to some places, you've been to others. Mm-hmm. And I've done some things, you've done others. How's your personal experience played out in this? Yeah, I, I was born in a city. So I, I had a pretty small view of, of, of the world because I was very close quarters, things like that. But when I was about six or seven, I moved to the Poconos in Pennsylvania and I got, and we lived on the back of a mountain. I lived right down the street from what was called the Shahola Falls. And as a kid, I got to go see the waterfall all the time. And I just remember as a kid, it's just so amazing when you get to see that you're not the main point of everything, that you're small in comparison to how great everything else is. So my, my experience with just the world is, is the wonder of it. Like I remember standing at the bottom of a waterfall and just watching the water continually come and, and, and know that it's supplying water for humans to live on that it's continuous, that there's there's something behind the fact that it just keeps on pouring as a kid, just being blown away by those realities. And some of my other experiences, I've got to travel to, um, I've been in Costa Rica, a little bit of Peru, I've been in Jerusalem, and seeing other other countries, like especially in Costa Rica, I was there for a couple of weeks the one time, and we lived in, the, in a very tribal area and saw people living really off of nature. It was amazing. Like, I really enjoyed it. So this will tie into one of my action plans we'll talk about later related to this. But I, when I was there, there was no phone, no internet. And I lived in a local community where we made our food every day, ate it, and then had to go get more food later. Like that was our sort of, like we'd go around and we'd cut fruit down from trees. They would raise chickens on the farm to have all these different things. And it was amazing to me in my time there how everything slowed down and every day felt fuller because I wasn't distracted. And so I was amazed in that experience and seeing that when you focus on people, like Jesus tells us in in the New Testament, that the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor. When you love other people and you invest in them and you're not distracted in technology and you're enjoying nature without just getting the cheap fast food fixes and other things like that, I felt healthier in that time. I enjoyed community in, in a very real sense in a way that I hadn't before. And I, I remember feeling sick to my stomach when I came back and went to a grocery, uh, to a Walmart super center. This is not nothing against Walmart in general, but I remember getting back to the States after being away in my, for weeks in Costa Rica. And I felt sick walking in and seeing the way that we live here. Not that Costa Rica is necessarily superior in some way, but you can, I do believe we've, we've lost our way in some, some sense with how we function uh, related to, to nature and other things here. So, If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. 
Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. The number of times when the things you said just hit me of like experiences of myself coming back and being like walking to Times Square uh-huh. after being places where there's no advertising. Yeah. And I mean, I felt like I was in a cathedral. Yeah. But the God of that cathedral was like the market. And it was like, that was the pinnacle of our society yeah. in some ways. You're right. There's a guy, his name is J.K.A. Smith. Really good writer. He has a book called... Um, Desiring the Kingdom, I think it's called. Um, it's fascinating. So he, he talks about that, that we build worship temples based on what we most love. And he talks about that in, in, in our current day in the West, how much that is uh, this storefront. And, and we see like our biggest buildings show what we most love. Back in like the Middle Ages and things, a lot of times it was churches. And that's really transitioned to where it's stores now and stuff and not even grocery stores, but like, I can't stand going to malls. I feel sick because how many people are putting themselves into debt or are buying things they don't need because of marketing schemes, employees that are basically making modern day slaves because of debt we're putting ourselves in over things we don't actually need. So yeah, no, I, I, I resonate with that uh, deeply. Wow. Yeah. It reminds me of this time I'm learning, I'm practicing singing and I was singing This Land is Your Land one time the, for the first time. I don't know if you know the the original, like the Guthrie, Arlo Guthrie, Woody Guthrie, Arlo Guthrie. And I'm singing it. This is like just after the insurrection. Mm-hmm. With the, it's January 8th, I think. And I'm walking down to the river. It's winter. I'm picking up litter because I do it every day. And I'm thinking about how there's all these people who are, they say that they're speaking for me. And I don't think any of them, I, I don't feel represented by any of the loud voices in this country right now. No. And so tears start welling up in my eyes. And, and, and meanwhile, I'm picking up litter, which is like, which no one respects. Yeah. I mean, a couple of people are like, oh, thank you. But no one actually, no one has ever said, I'm going to start doing that now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and then I get down to the river and I'm, I'm kind of tearing up a bit because of the situation and, and how I feel. And I can go to more depth, but, uh, but then I, I go out on a pier and I look down and I see the Statue of Liberty and dwarfed on the right by the Goldman Sachs building and on the left by the World Trade Center. And like this tiny little thing, which was a beacon of hope to the world Mm -hmm. is now not invisible, but certainly dwarfed by all this other stuff. And then just, it was like the water started coming out. Like like my mask is like covered in in, in (laughs) tears at this point. And I put up my hood so that people weren't like, what's wrong? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't know how to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that. So I don't know if you want to explain like one action step or if you want me to explain like one thing I'm currently doing as an action step related to these things. I'd be happy to explain that. Or if you wanted to preface, I don't know if you have something you you do specifically with the challenge. I'm happy to hear that. What I'd like to do is, is drawing on the things that you talked about. You talked about a lot of things about the awe of the, at that waterfall, about the the community and the beauty. And I invite you to act to think of something you can do to act on those things. And you don't have to, if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. And I want to distinguish for you, maybe this isn't as necessary, but for most people, I, it's, it's important to say, I'm not saying what's the most important thing you can do for the environment or what's the, the thing that will have the most effect or what someone else says you should do. Yeah. Not about that. 
mm-hmm. about the rest of the world. It's really about acting on something inside mm-hmm. and with a couple of constraints that it has to be something new that you're not already doing, mm-hmm. something that you do with your own hands and something with a physical component. So it, not just reading or watching videos, mm-hmm. by all means, read and watch videos, but take the next step also to action. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, since I work with all these leaders, a lot of them are like, oh, I'll create this committee or I'll get this law passed or something like that. Right. By all means, do those things. Mm-hmm. But this is something you do with your own hands. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so there's something I'm currently in the process of starting. I haven't started it yet, but I've actually been thinking through in our conversations, thinking of ways that I could better apply things. And it came about in part through our conversation along with other things, but I'm happy to share what I'm thinking. I don't know if you have them do that or if that's something you follow up on later. What do you typically do? Yeah, but the way it usually works out is almost always someone says, most people will say, here's what I'm doing and they can't think of what they do. And then they, then they start thinking of, oh, well, I'll do. And they start thinking of things that like they read they're supposed to do. But usually that doesn't tie, connect with their emotions. Yeah. And that's, that's still abstract. And then, they, and then there's usually this epiphany that they're like, oh, you mean just do something that I care about? And like, yeah. Yeah. And then, then they realize, oh, yeah, here's something. And then, Great. And then by the end of the call, they, they've committed to something. Yeah. No, I, let, me, let me say something. I, I actually, so just last night, I purchased what is called, it's a group called Techless. It is a phone that does not have internet does not have any apps. You can't download any. It just has calling, texting, and it has a map. So I can actually find places if I need to get around, which is a key component. I didn't want to go to a dumb phone. But it also, one of the key things, and this ties into something I love and I'll bring it back to it. This phone has a kind of old school Kindle, black and white, and it has no color on purpose Mm -hmm. because of how much our phones are made to distract us and entice us and stimulate us. So we're always looking at it. It also has zero ads on it. So I talked about how my experience in coming back and going to the grocery, not even a grocery store, going to a mall was overwhelming when I was after being in, in Costa Rica for a couple, couple of weeks. One of my convictions and one of the things that ties into what I'm doing my PhD work on down the road uh, that I hope to teach on, I want to teach college students about this to help save them from, not save them, that's a bit strong, to help prevent them from making similar mistakes to what I have and, and, and trying to stop making is being addicted to their phones. I think that is a a massive problem and multi-layered problem. All of us know it's a problem. Everyone, if you if you were to go around and pull the average person and say, do you think you're on your phone too much? And do you wish you talked to people more? I think just about everyone's like, yeah, that'd be great. But nobody wants to do it. <laughs> like, and Because it takes, like, if you talk to most people, it's like, I couldn't live without my phone. I could, like, I, it just, everything's on it. And I want to get away from that. So I'm taking steps to where it's going to be inconvenient in some ways that I won't have my Apple wallet. I won't have all the apps that I usually enjoy that distract me, but I'm taking this step to better love people around me so that I'm not distracted. I, you talk about want being in wonder. Like I, I'm married to a, to a beautiful woman. I have lots of dear friends and I'm frustrated by how much I'm around them and I'm distracted by my phone and not interacting with them and how I'm not present with people when I'm with them. And I, for years, I've just kind of tried to put filters on my phone, block how much time. It hasn't worked. And phones are made by very smart people to take up all of our time. And uh, it's built that way. And I'm, I'm admitting finally that I just, I'm not strong enough to get over those addictions. And I, I'm kind of resetting on that. So I want, I want to be someone who is present where I am and is not distracted. And the other thing that ties into that is 
how many ad schemes come through smartphones that make, make me want to go buy things that I don't need and how many of those things that I'm buying that I don't need are being made by in other countries by people who are paid way too little for what they're doing and are being exploited by the machine that is the, the capitalistic enterprise we live in now. So I'm concerned by those things. And I think a, a very tangible step I can take, and, and I say this as, a, as someone who wants to be a future pastor, I want to be an example to people on how to not be a slave to technology. And this is a very practical, like I, I've done this before in the past. I've used a dumb phone for a little while and I really liked that season, but I, I'm going to, I'm planning on, this is kind of a commitment that I, I, I would like to do the rest of my life. If, if at all possible with my jobs and things like that, to not have a device in my pocket that is constantly, that is made to distract me and made to pull me away from being in, in wide-eyed wonder of God's goodness all around me and creation in the form of other humans who I'm called to love and be fully invested in and also buying things that I don't need and being distracted. Like how many times are we're walking outside and there's such beautiful creation and I'm looking around, and I'm seeing everyone on their phones. Like my, my wife and I were just on vacation. And we were like on this beach and everyone's on their phone. And it's like, there's an ocean, like enjoy it, like drink it in. And we're not, we're just so distracted. So I, I, I want to uh, be an example in that for my friends. And I also, that's just an example. I don't say this as someone who's a, who's a hero. I, I fail in this area and I am not, and I'm not strong enough to not be addicted. So I'm just getting rid of it moving forward. So. I predict every single person who heard you was like, yeah, I got his, all these people on the beach looking at images of other beaches and being the other one because it must be better because I'm looking, that one must be better than this one because I'm looking at this one on my phone over the one that's actually here. Yeah. So yeah, you use the word craving. Craving is a word that I use a lot mm-hmm. in this. And yeah. I got strongly influenced by uh, this professor at NYU who he used to say he would allow students to have the computers open and then he realized the greatest minds of the world today are being paid to come up with a little red dot to make you crave yeah. checking your message and, and to make you want to open. And then once it's opened, then to stay yep. for as long as possible. Yep. And he can't win that battle. It's just, he's over. It's like, he's outmatched. Yep. We are. It's sad. And at first he said it, it was his job to be more interesting than that. But then he realized <laughs> it, it's not a benign it's not like looking out the window. Yeah. Where cool. there's just like trees. It's it's an actual yeah. active distraction in which we passively turn off our brains and are just not there. Yeah, it's you know, a lot of my professors on campus even now, it's become a, a very common policy that laptops aren't allowed, phones aren't allowed. We're back to old school notebook, pen and paper because we're realizing the detriment that that is. And what's amazing is how you you realize how much of a problem it is when you're sitting there and you're like craving wanting to check because you're not sure someone's texted you. It's like nothing important has happened the last 10 minutes, but you're so wired that your brain needs that, that dopamine hit of seeing the colors on your phone. You're so wired in that way. Like one of my, one of the guys I enjoy reading, I think his name is Tristan Harris. He was part of the social dilemma thing that that came out on Netflix a little while ago. He, if I understand right, he's one of the guys that was behind creating the endless scroll that now is on Facebook Mm -hmm. and other things. And he has actually since, like publicly repented for that and said how detrimental that's been. Because before, I remember this back in the day, this, this, this show, I feel old when I say this, but like, I remember when Facebook first came out, you would get to the point where you'd get to the end of the page 
and you couldn't go any further. And there was like this feeling that kicked in of you're like, I just wasted my life going through all of Facebook. Well, that guilt has been removed because of endless scroll now. You never get to the end. So you don't realize how much time is going by as you're doing it. And so this guy, Tristan Harris, has talked, he has a, a blog that's really good, but he talks about ethical technology. And I'm really drawn to that. I, I, I plan on in the future, I'd love to, again, teach, I'll be probably teaching in a more Bible college type setting, but I plan on trying to help students, you know, 18 to 20 years old, like they're coming in already deeply addicted, like natively addicted. They're like, it's like, you know, children that are born to parents on drugs. They're kind of born into a world addicted to technology and raised on it. And so one of my hopes in the future is to help wean people off of that uh, through showing them the dangers of that. So Now back to your commitment. Yeah. Uh, the next stage is to, is to make it a smart goal, specific, measurable, realistic, mm-hmm. achievable, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, relevant, time bound. So can you specify what you're going to do and for how long? So my hope with the is to not go back to a smartphone. As I'm hopeful that none of my jobs require that moving forward. I don't think it'll ever be that stringent. But my main goal is to have a phone in which I'm spending less than 30 minutes a day on my phone like ideal. And and that's like including texting and things like that would be the goal so that I'm not always looking at a screen and my eyes are up looking at people around me. I can't like my, my wife was kind enough to bring out a couple of days ago when we were talking that a lot of times if I'm in a group of people and I start becoming uninterested in the conversation, I tend to start reading articles on my phone or things like that. And that conveys to the people around me that I'm not interested in them. And once I find them boring, I'm done with them. That's not, that's not healthy or, or being a good friend. So yeah, I, I want to, my hope is to begin seeing and measuring in my own mind, like thinking through, it's, it's going to probably feel like getting uh, withdrawal, like not being able to grab my phone if I'm bored, but to have to actually engage in the moment. So that's not, that's, that's going to be a little harder to measure in some sense, but in a way not like you talk about using your hands. I would like to go on more walks instead of spending time on my phone, or I would like to uh, be able to, to do more exercise or just spend time with people and not be so prone to need to go to, to the phone. So the measurable is going to be seeing that um, tendency or that maybe we could even say the reflex to have to go to my phone and start changing that reflex and that habit so that my, my first instinct is to engage with those around me, not to get lost in my devices. So it sounds like the core of it is that you're going to drop to no more than 30 minutes a day on the phone. Mm-hmm. And the rest is all the anticipated effects. Yeah. So you already bought a phone that's going to help that. Yeah. What would you estimate your current phone time? Currently, uh, yeah, I get, you know, you, uh, I have an Apple, I have an iPhone. So every Sunday I get a text about how much I've been using my phone. So I think in an average week, I believe it's right now around two hours, 45 minutes a day. So this is a big drop. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's a small drop. I, I shouldn't, you're, you're the measure of, of it's big or small. Yeah. So how long do you think you'd have to do this for, if I asked you, how's it going, that you could give a meaningful, you know, this, you know probably tomorrow would be too soon mm-hmm. because then we'll schedule, if it's okay with you, to have a second conversation because I'd love to hear yeah. how it's going. So I order the phone. I'll be getting the phone here. I believe it's supposed to be here in three or four days. I would say, so, you know, most studies that I've read say that it takes 21 to 23 days to form a new habit. So ideally, I would like to say about somewhere around a month is where I'll be able to look back and 
see if I've been able to retrain those reflexes. You know, so, you know, first thing when my alarm goes off in the morning, I'm not reading articles or lost on my phone or, you know, things like that. Uh, So I would say, yeah, somewhere between. So if we count the three days for shipping, um, I get it, get it set up. I would probably say right around 20, 25 to 28 days from now would be a good time to reassess where I would be at on that. Okay. So after we finish uh, recording, then let's get out the calendars and schedule the next conversation to hear that. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. And we could pick up there where we are now and also get that. I, um, I'm going to give you one prediction that I predict that you think it's going to improve your life mm-hmm. by X amount. I think it's going to be way more. Oh, yeah. Like even taking into account that, that even, even taking into account that you think it's going to be more than, because I think it's, you're going to lead into areas that you, like, I don't know, but I know that my phone, at one point, the SIM card broke <laughs> and actually the reader broke. So I couldn't put a new SIM card in. Oh, okay. Yeah. So all the, it's got like a couple apps and that's it. Yep. And if I use something too much, it like really slows down. <laughs> so I have to like reboot and then it, you know, it's resetting all the time. Yeah. One of the best things I've ever done. I, I know, mean, right? It, and not that I use my phone that much. I think I use it a lot less than a lot of people, but it's great. It's like, it's basically a feature phone now, but it has a few things that are internet, but I can't really do much about it because that little pin that the guy, I took at the store and the guy was looking with the microscope and he's like, yeah, that's broken. You got to get a new phone. It's like, well, this phone's going to last until it breaks. Yeah. That's not broken. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to, to seeing the results and uh, yeah, I hope it, uh, hope it improves my ability to uh, yeah, love, uh, love others well and not be as distracted and selfish. So. So I propose we pick up there next time, yeah. uh, unless there's anything to close with or anything before closing uh, that's worth bringing up this time. Uh, no, I think that's um, it's pretty good. All right. So then it's possible we'll talk before a month from now, but yeah. we'll also talk a month from now. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. Michael Carlino, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.